0: Is retirement on your mind? Do you know where you'll want to live? There are so many choices around the world and the clock is ticking.
1: We're Mr. and Mrs. Rover, and we're on a journey to find our paradise. We'll be talking to retirees, real estate agents, and other professionals to help us get the inside scoop about their local area. So join us and find your paradise.
0: Hi, everyone. Today we're talking to a senior nomad, and I'm really looking forward to it because, let's face it, after being locked away in a house for a year, um, I'm getting really itchy to travel and experience other places.
1: Me too, and I'm really interested in this type of lifestyle where you travel and experience lots of different places, but we still work. The good news is we have remote jobs, so we are looking at testing this type of lifestyle by choosing some cities within the U.S. to go and live for 30 days.
0: Yeah, and what we're finding is that it's easy to find the places, but there are some logistical challenges that we had not thought about.
1: Right. I mean, because we're working, we definitely need to have two separate workspaces because we're generally on meetings all day. And so we need a space in the living room, which is easy because you can set up your, your equipment on the table. But the bedroom, there is rarely a desk within the bedroom. And so now we're looking at finding bedrooms big enough to be able to get a folding table that we can ship in.
0: Yeah, and then of course, I don't know about you, Evelyn, but I'm addicted to my external monitors. Yes. So, (laughs) you know, you then have to figure out about, okay, if you go and let's say hang out in San Diego for 30 days um, because of work and you're on these calls all day, you need to have those external monitors as well.
1: 100%. So now it's like, okay, now we need to... Get a couple monitors that we put in a box, our keyboards, our mice, so that we can keep our productivity high while we're visiting these places. It's kind of a bummer. We're not retired yet, but you know what? At least we can start ticking places off of our list.
0: That's true. And maybe Paul will have some good uh, suggestions for us today. So today we're talking to Paul Heller. Um, He is the man behind a great website called 50plusnomad.com.
1: Right. And it's funny that you say that because I've been saying senior nomad. 50 plus sounds so much better, especially now that we're in our 50s. It doesn't sound old.
0: Definitely. I would agree with that. I think the moment I started feeling old is when I got that AARP sign up Uh. uh, (laughs) information in the mail. I know maybe you guys can relate to that.
1: Yes, they hit you right at 50.
0: Yeah, they do.
1: So we're ready to talk to Paul, hear more information about his nomadic retirement. So without further ado, here he is.
0: Hi, Paul. Hi. So um, I think the first question I have is, what is a 50-plus nomad?
2: I think a 50-plus nomad is anybody who is obviously over the age of 50, who is looking to be able to explore the world and see it in a new way. Um, I think that to me, generally, the thing that I'd like to think distinguishes 50-plus nomads is that they want to make traveling or living in another part of the world an integral part of their lives, um, as opposed to somebody who just wants to take a two-week vacation. There's absolutely, taking a two-week vacation is terrific, but that's not really what I think of as a nomad.
0: Got it. And I know I saw in your blog that your travel addiction really started when you were pretty young. Can you share that story?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know what it was, but I always had a fascination from the time I was the, the smallest kid in, in learning about the world. Um, I would, even when I was a kid, I would like, my parents would drive through major cities in California where I grew up. And I would say, oh, I've always wanted to try uh, Taiwanese food, for example, or let's go there. And thankfully, I had parents who more or less indulged me.
1: That's so interesting, because that's really insightful for a little kid, you know, to have that sort of um, self-awareness about that desire to go out and explore the world. So with that said... I see that, you know, from your blog and reading more about you, that your travel really began in 2011, where you earnestly were able to to live out this desire to travel around the world. So, I don't know, do you have some favorite experiences you'd love to share?
2: Oh, I've had so many wonderful experiences in my life that way. Um, actually, probably the most interesting experience I had actually happened in 1994 and 1995, where I spent a year as a volunteer teaching English in a town of Kaliningrad, which is in Russia. And I actually ended up getting married to a Russian woman and was married to her for seven years, and we came to the United States together. Um, It was just really, it was very unusual because I was in a city where it had only been opened up to the public uh, about three years before I was there. So because it was a it was a military naval base for the for the soviet union and it was really interesting to see the transformation of of russia in those years it was a difficult period for them but it was a fascinating time to be there
1: interesting where did you find people were open to you being there
2: uh i think that yes they were it was an exciting time for young people because there were all sorts of new opportunities And it was a scary time for older people because things like being an engineer no longer had much value and the things that started to have value were things that you would think of as pretty basic skills but things that a lot of people didn't have like bank tellers and uh, travel agents because those things didn't really exist there before.
1: Right. You know, we uh, we recently traveled to Slovakia because that's where my mom is from. And it was the first time we had an opportunity to go. And it's been many, many years since uh, communism fell there. But, you know, it's, it's something that the younger people today even talk about is the effects are still felt even today in 2021 to where, you know, you go to these types of countries and, and maybe customer service isn't fantastic because it's just it's a new emerging country still
2: yeah in some ways it is actually i, I i've been to eastern europe and in a lot of ways i was quite impressed by how much it has changed and how different it is and how and i think they actually have had a lot of success in in a way
1: yes they have yeah share if
0: you don't mind share one of your favorite experiences in your travels to eastern europe
2: um i really love I really loved going to the former Yugoslavian republics, mainly because each was so completely different from each other. You could really see the, you know, just at a short distance, you were in a completely different place. Sarajevo is so completely different than, for example, Ljubljana. It's just like a totally different world, and yet they're not really very far in distance.
1: What kind of differences?
2: Well, Ljubljana had a lot of. Influence from Austria uh, it had a it feels very European the mountains and so forth are just gorgeous and Sarajevo to me felt like when I was in Istanbul about in 19 in the 1980s so it was completely different it, it was all the Islamic influence it felt very Turkish so it's like it was sort of like getting a little piece of Turkey and a little piece of Austria
1: right that is interesting wow what a difference between areas in one country because that's yeah. expected from country to country in in Europe because they all have their own cultural uh, unique pieces
0: yeah
2: and I thought that was really interesting I would really love to explore more it was also it was also with the exception of Slovenia it was quite cheap and uh, it was easy to get around and I enjoyed it it's kind of funny for me I actually find it kind of cool to go to Eastern Europe when I see languages that are like Russian, because I did learn a fair amount of Russian while I was there, and I could sort of go, oh, there's a dentist, there's a this, there's a that, a pharmacy, that's a blah, blah.
0: And Paul, I know you have kind of some advice for learning a second language for retirees.
2: I think actually, when I was trying to think of what my advice would be, I would say it's pretty much the same for anything that anybody does. I think the most important thing to to do is to one, be serious about it and realize that it takes some time. Typically in order to be, depending on what you want to do, but to be able to really start being conversational probably takes about 200 hours of effort, which sounds like a lot, but if you consider that that's about one month of working full time, it's not quite so intimidating sounding. Um, But the thing is, I. Nowadays, most things are kind of prepackaged, especially with languages where they have a whole system to go through. I don't think that most people really work well within just one system. I think there's lots of different ways to approach it. And I think the best thing to do is to try different things until you find the methods that work for you and realize that the methods that work for you will change over time. So sometimes something will work this way sometimes. There's a whole lot of discussion in language learning. If it's best to be all in the other language or if it's best to be all in your mother language or so forth. And I think those things, I think for most people, that's just a matter of playing with it. Sometimes it's good to be in, to learn all things in the target language. And sometimes the only way you'll understand it is to learn it in English. I think what I would really love to try to figure out how to do is to help people to discover what their best methods are for them. And I think that's the same even for for people who want to become retirement, who want to retire in another country, or want to travel full-time, or travel for several months a year. I think that each person needs to approach it a little differently. And at least for me, I found when I was traveling around the world, the most important thing for me was to try different things. Sometimes I'd live with the family. Sometimes I'd go to language school. Sometimes I would do volunteer work. Sometimes I would go on tours. Sometimes I would go, you know, I would uh, stay in one city for two weeks by myself and just go out and see this countryside with tours or Sometimes I do things by, I go to museums by myself. Um, you know what I mean? It just, it's, and it worked for me because I loved the variety. For me, having that variety was the secret to being happy for almost five years of my life traveling around the world. Um, it, it is sort of a challenge, and I think a lot of people don't realize that it, while it's a dream and it's a fabulous thing, I would never change it for anything. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy, just like anything else. And it's important, I think, for most people to try different things. You might not like it that's okay so what that's the nice thing about having the time is that you might discover some things you don't like, and that's 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 good too.
1: right. Well, that leads me to another question. What are some of those things that you discovered that you don't like?
2: Uh, I sometimes it's nice to have a place to call your own. Um, there's a certain Niceness to having a predictability in your life, and to being able to spend the time to make real friends, and to really get to know one place well. Um, I think the, that uh, I think if you really want to feel like you know some place, you need to be able to spend some time there, and you need to be able to see it on a lot of different levels.
1: I, I would agree with that. Where is the longest, or what, yeah, what place is the longest that you've stayed at?
2: Well, right now, is, I've lived in Mexico for, I, the, I've lived here for about five and a half years now, and but I've spent about three years of that here in Mexico. And in Merida, I've spent also several months traveling around Mexico. All in all, I've spent probably close to about five years of my life in Mexico. I feel like at this point I know it pretty well. I can speak fairly good Spanish. I know a lot of the I know a lot of the history, the culture, the society, and I can relate pretty well to most Mexican people because I have an idea of where they come from and what they're about. I've also had the experience of living in with about ten different Mexican families in different parts of Mexico as part of learning and learning Spanish. And so uh, through, throughout, I've also taken academic courses on the history of Mexico and so forth. And through it all, I now feel like I'm, I have a pretty good handle on what Mexico is all about.
0: And, and you mentioned you've settled down in the near term in Merida. Um, how, did, how did you decide on Merida?
2: Well, I knew I wanted to live in Mexico. I've always had a affection and fondness for Mexico. So that part was kind of easy um i think what happened truthfully is i'd spent about five years traveling around the world and i decided it was kind of time for me to think about what my next steps were and the one thing i realized is that i had the money to be able to buy a house and i kind of needed that to stabilize me for a while um uh, it was just like it's time for me to stabilize and Mediva is probably the safest big city in Mexico, and it's, I don't it sounds funny, but the one weather factor that I don't like is cold. and many and most of Mexico being in the mountains in the winter can get very cold, and a lot of times they don't have heat, and I just find that miserable. I, I have a really hard time being comfortable in cold at night when you're trying to sleep so i decided to do the opposite i went to the hottest place in Mexico <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is funny any mexican who i say oh i live in there, they'll say oh that's such a safe it's such a nice city but it's hot and i think yeah <laughs> you're right it's hot
1: so you're good with that do you have in your at your house do you have air conditioning
2: oh yeah no no i wouldn't i wouldn't have bought the house or i wouldn't have done it without any air conditioning
1: yeah, I, we've been down in that region, and it is it is pretty oppressive. So, and is that year-long? Is there a, a more comfortable season?
2: No, definitely uh, December, January, February. It can actually get a little cold, but it never gets terribly cold. And to my surprise, I found out that nowadays air conditioners actually have heaters. So probably about once a year I turn on the heat.
1: <laughs> well, that's not bad. That's not bad. I don't like cold either.
2: Yeah, I... I and actually, I don't really mind the heat. I just, the biggest thing that I have to do is uh, remember to hydrate because I have been re- dehydrated a couple times here.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and Paul, you had mentioned that you've traveled throughout Mexico. I'd love to learn a little bit more about some of your impressions of the various cities and, and maybe tell us a little bit about the Mexican culture that um, perhaps our listeners don't know about.
2: I think that the most amazing thing about Mexico is the diversity. It's an incredibly diverse country. There's so many different types of regions, and and so many different types of, of countryside. And there's some cultural differences between different regions as well. The Yucatan is probably the most distinct region of Mexico. Um, it's I, I, I've always loved the food. I like the music. I like I don't know. There's a certain I think more than anything else what I love is color. Um, I, I find that that uh, the United States to me is kind of dull color wise. <laughs> I love just having things that, like my house is full of all sorts of artifacts from different parts of Mexico that I've collected over time. Just because I really just love the their kind of playful use of colors and playful designs. and. All that sort of thing—it really attracts me. It makes me feel much, much happier. I, I find it just there's something about it just it being not being so kind of pre-programmed, I guess you'd say, in, in in your environment that I find kind of cool.
1: You know, I I absolutely love some of the traditional Mexican kitchens with the beautiful, colorful tile that they have. And at your to your point, it. A traditional Mexican home is very colorful—reds and blues and greens and oranges and yellows—and it's just an explosion of color. It just feels very lively and happy.
2: Yeah, that's what I—that's what I like. I—I it, it, I find that to be very, and I like the fact that they have different colors on their houses. It's just not quite as predictable. It's uh, and that—that I, that I find very, very. Uh, uh, soothing in a weird sort of way.
1: Right. Well, you know, we tend to have the suburban cookie cutter neighborhoods where there's, you know, three approved colors of neutral. <laughs> so it, it does get a little boring.
2: Yeah, and I, I just find that a little boring. You know, it's it's not. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to criticize it. It's just for me personally, I prefer something a little more lively. <laughs> And the same thing with the food. I like things a little spicy. It was funny, not long ago, I went to San Antonio, and I went to a Mexican restaurant there, and I was like, boy, this food needs some spice. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was meant for the gringos, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that, but just a little bit.
0: So, Paul, your 50-plus nomad blog has a lot of great travel information um, that really can help travelers save a lot of money. I know I was checking out... Um, your blog about travel hacking and your frequent flyer and loyalty programs. I was checking out the blog about getting the best airline ticket for your money. Um, I, I'd love for you to perhaps share your top five money-saving travel tips for your uh, 50-plus senior nomads.
2: Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that this is based on pre-COVID conditions, so I'm not really sure... How things are going to work themselves out over the next two years. I think there'll be some changes. I don't think they'll be hugely dramatic, but I do think they will happen, and I don't know what they are at this point. So that's something to keep in mind before before I give some tips. Um, but I think the number one thing is to be flexible is the number one thing for saving. The more flexible you can be, the 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 cheaper it's going to be and the easier it's going to be. And also, I think another thing is sometimes just a little bit cheaper is not worth it. Uh, A lot of times, taking a really long flight, long convoluted flight, doing it on a regular basis can get very old. And sometimes for just like $50 more, you can actually have a more direct flight or a better flight. And I think each person determines what that is. To me, if I'm going to make a connection, I'd much rather have a couple hours in the connecting place than trying to run across like a huge airport trying to, to, to uh, find my gate. I'd rather not have that stress. <laughs> I'd rather just be able to go and, you know, have a drink or have some food or something and just relax and get to the, you know, and, and not have to be stressed. Um, I think those are the most important things I could say. Is to be flexible, and also to um, realize that sometimes small changes, just spending a little more money, sometimes is worth it. Sometimes, for example, especially if you're going to a leisure market destination like Cancun, sometimes you could sit in for, in business class for like twenty five dollars more than you can sit in the in coach. And I think it's well worth the 25 to $50 to be more comfortable.
0: Well, that is definitely something that um, I think our listeners are going to appreciate. Um, anytime you can save a money or um, perhaps mm-hmm. even have a little bit of a better experience, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, I also would say that you should, you should try to at least be part of frequent flyer plans and to try to figure out how to take advantage of them. I think it's it's worth it at least to try. Um, a lot of times, they I have about half of all the flights that I got I got for free, or not for free, but for for a fairly minimal. Usually, it's somewhere under a hundred dollars, and that was because of the, my use of credit cards and also their uh, the points that I acquired from using.
0: So Evelyn and I have been talking about getting a travel credit card. so if I were to take a sneak peek in your wallet and if you were to you know take out your favorite travel card, um do you have one that we should take a look at
2: that's hard that's a hard question to answer because over the last couple of years they've changed and nowadays, I don't think they're they're not as good as they used to be. I know I could if you had asked me that question three years ago, I would say unite you know, anything thats United branded was the most useful for me. Just because of the destinations that it went to and the, the the awards program that they had. I think a huge part of it depends on where you're leaving from. If you're leaving consistently from a particular airport, then you want to be able to use whatever is the most use the most used airline you want a credit card that's branded with the most useful airline for that particular part of the world.
0: Got it. Good to know. Well, United is definitely one of the ones we're going to take a close look at because Evelyn has done a lot of travel on that. But let me let me pivot to something maybe a little bit more serious. One of the interesting articles on your blog was about an express kidnapping that unfortunately you experienced in early 2020. Um, I did not know what that was until I read your blog. And while you probably don't want to relive every moment from that night, um, do you want to share perhaps with our listeners some of the highlights and lessons learned from that unfortunate experience?
2: Uh, I think the biggest thing is that you really never quite know where a place is safe or not because of the fact that I had been into Puebla like three or four times before, which is uh, about two hours from Mexico city. And every time I'd been there before it was one of the safest places in Mexico. I figured that it hadn't changed and I kind of learned the hard way that it had changed. Uh, Um, immediately after I was kidnapped and I started talking to people, they were all like, no, this is now one of the most dangerous cities in Mexico. And I was a big surprise because I'd only been there maybe three years before. And it was one of the safest cities in Mexico and things can change. And it's not always easy. What I had learned is if I had, if I'd gone through and tried to do the research that I wanted to do in Spanish, I would have found that out, but almost all of the websites that were geared toward the English speaking market had not noted that that had changed. And so I got into a taxicab uh, instead of an Uber. I was waiting for an Uber and the Uber didn't show up. So I saw a taxi cab go by and I flagged it down, something I've done hundreds of times throughout Latin America. And uh, this time, this particular time, somebody uh, forced, essentially what they did is they, uh, they forced me to stay in my seat while they got my ATM card, they got my PIN number, and they withdrew a lot of money out of my account. Um, while I was sitting in a car and they just dropped me off in the middle of nowhere and I had no money, I had nothing. I they even stole my glasses. Um and I was kind of forced to to figure out how to get home. Fortunately I found somebody who was helpful and helped called the police for me and the police took me back to a hotel where a friend of mine was staying and uh it was and then I had to deal with all those things like getting new credit cards and so forth after that. It was quite a not something I would recommend to anybody. It's more discombobulating than anything else. I never really felt like I was in total danger, but boy, it was not something I would uh, recommend anybody to.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds scary because you don't know and I know you you struggled on whether to publish your story. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you did because I do think it's important, no matter where we travel in the world, you know, making sure that we're always uh, have a sense of what's around us and, and maybe local conditions or that type of thing. But I do find it interesting that you said the Spanish language sites you would have looked at maybe had more updated information than the English language sites, which to me, that's really interesting
2: yeah no that was something i i learned kind of the hard way because when i started to look at the spanish language ones they were obvious there is actually a site in english that's called mexico's news daily that actually had done a report on that that i found out that they'd done only about a week before i'd left <laughs> and it was it was based on a report from that was translated from spanish into english for their website so that's that's a good that's a good potential thing to look at if you're traveling in
1: Very good tip. So did it change your your outlook on traveling?
2: A little bit, yeah, it made me more cautious. It, it, uh, it, I immediate, yeah it made me I, I'm still I still want to eventually go traveling again, but it, it in a weird sort of way. It happened at a good time for me because I was thinking about settling down. I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, uh, living in a, living permanently or making this my home base. And what it did is it kind of made me more able to accept that, I guess you'd say. Um, I love traveling all the time, and it was wonderful, and I would highly recommend it to anybody, even though that happened to me. Um, but it also made me more comfortable with just settling down for a while. And then COVID happened not long after that. So it kind of forced me to do that
1: anyway. Right. It forces a decision. A lot of us have been on the travel sidelines since since we've been dealing with COVID, but you know, we're seeing the light, things are starting to reopen. So I know we're looking forward to traveling and, and hopefully Merida will be opening up. Is Merida completely opened up yet or is it?
2: Actually, in some ways, it's very open. Um, most of the things are open. Uh, you do have to wear masks mask all the time. They are just beginning to start giving out. Uh, just last month, they started to give out vaccinations to people over the age of 60. And actually, it looks like this Friday. I, I'm 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 in my fifties, and it looks like this Friday I will be able to get a vaccination.
1: Excellent.
0: Congratulations on that. Um,
2: so yeah, so we're I'm um, hopefully, and um, it is that's partly because I am a per, I am a temporary resident here. So I went through the process to become a temporary resident. And I I may very well go through the process to become a permanent resident and possibly even a dual citizen at some point. I'm not sure. Except to see how things kind of work their way out.
0: Now, Paul, as we were talking about, COVID is starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, More and more people are going to be thinking about the um, senior nomad lifestyle. Um, I read an interesting blog post about whether or not to pack light or not, and I'll have to say the blog post went against what you so often hear, so um, perhaps could you give some advice? Do you pack light or not?
2: I think it depends on you <laughs> in my particular case, I'm a heavy set person, and it is not you know, people say, "Oh, you can find clothes if you need them. I can't." Um, so so it, it, it was helpful for me to, to realize that, that I can't, I spent a lot of money on clothes that I hated, didn't fit me well, didn't look well, um, because they were the only thing I could find in a lot of the world. And so I think it really depends on what your situation is. Sometimes there are, are certain products that you can't find overseas, um, that might be good for you to bring along with you. A lot of times also, to me, the way that I dealt with the fact that I had a fair amount of, of luggage is that i it kind of forced me to discover something that was good for me to know anyway, which is that I don't particularly like the type of trips where you spend two days in one city, then you spend two days in another, then you spend three days in another and one of the blessings that I had when I had large amounts of time is that I could spend more time. So I usually would, would, you know, I might've taken a two, three week, a two, three month trip. Sometimes I took four or five month trips, but usually I would go to five or six places in that time or seven places. I wouldn't go to a huge number of places and I would design things so that I could actually have all my clothes and so forth with me. Um, so, because I wasn't moving all that much, I kind of kept it to what, what I kind of kept my weight limits to what they imposed, where they would start charging extra fees. And uh, I had roll on bags and so forth, and usually it worked out quite well for me. Um, and it kind of forced me to discover my favorite type of traveling to do independently is to go to a big city in a country and spend 10 days there, 12 days there and just go from there on little trips outside that's that's what i love doing and i also enjoyed uh, going on tours for that reason it was it kind of dealt with all those type of logistical issues for me which was a joy as well so sometimes uh, i a lot of times people's advice is oh you should travel independently oh you shouldn't travel independently i think I think each person's differently with that i don't think there's a right or wrong way i don't think there's i've met people who have been on hundreds of tours and i don't think or you know spent six months a year on cruise ships if you can do it why not if you enjoy it why not there's not a right or wrong way to do this
1: right and i think we're we're gonna hit a time coming up soon once covid really does pass where People are just raring to go. So you're going to see all types of travel happening from, you know, everything I need. It fits in my backpack and we're going to just see everything to, you know, things like you just said. I'm going to spend a good amount of time here. I know we are looking at, hey, could we go 30 days here, 30 days there, really kind of find where we like because we're not there yet.
2: I think that's a great way to approach it. I really do. And try different things. And one thing I would say that a lot of people, it may, it may or may not work for you, but one thing I love doing, and I don't think a lot of people our age consider, is staying with a local family and uh, taking a class uh, in a language or something about a culture or something like that while you're there. It can be a lot of fun. It's very interesting. It's a great way to learn if you like the place or not.
1: Yeah. How do you find a local family if that's something that someone is interested in?
2: Most language schools have programs where they have they have arrangements that allow you to stay with a local family.
0: I did not know that.
2: Yeah, most of them do. So cause it's really the practical part of it, you know, if you're learning a language. But it, I will say this, that really helps if you have spent the time to be able to be at a I would say lower intermediate type of level because then you can actually t- start talking to these people and the classes can work into the into that. If you if you do it at a basic level, I don't know how helpful it really is. Um, and, but if you already have a little bit of the language, it can be very helpful. I think the biggest thing about language learning, the one. I'm planning to develop a series of kind of individualized courses for people to teach them how to be able to to travel and live in other countries, but also I want to do ones on language, and I want to have the languages geared toward I'm going to work with people who speak Spanish here to be able to teach them how I think they should develop a course that's individualized around the interests of a particular person, because I, I really do believe that you can, I think anybody can learn a language to, to an acceptable level, to be able to be conversational if they're willing to put about 200 hours into it.
1: One of the fringe benefits that I've read is learning a second language is one of the best things you can do to exercise your brain as you age, to stave off things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So it, it's really a double, you know, even if you're not planning to go anywhere and, and live in another country, it's a great hobby to take up.
2: I think it can be. The thing is is I think that a lot of people have a lot of fears and a lot of they're uncomfortable cuz they haven't been in school for a long time. And a lot of times I think The wonderful thing about the fact there's so many programmed ways to learn languages is that you can play with them, you can dabble with them. And I think the biggest problem that people make is they just think, oh, I'm just going to do this this way. There's only one way to do this. I don't think there is just one way. I really don't. For myself, I find that it's very helpful for me to be able to see patterns. One of the most useful courses I took in learning French was in Spanish, because I already knew the patterns in Spanish. So when I started to learn it in French, I mean in Spanish, I could see, oh, rather than having to go through like six weeks of all of the differences in the past tense and how they're used, I just went, well, there's five differences between Spanish and French. So why don't I learn those those five differences between Spanish and French, which took took like two or three days instead of weeks.
1: Right. No, I'm I'm struggling right now with case endings, which you're probably familiar with since oh, you spoke oh, yeah. Russian. Oh, gosh. oh, it's killing no, me.
2: Those, yeah, no, no, no. The, the best thing I can say to you with that is don't worry too much about it. It's not the end of the earth.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And she's I'll get there. Me all about no, they're it. very
2: they're they're very difficult. I know from Russian Russian has six case endings, so I know exactly what you're talking mm-hmm.
1: about. As yeah. does Slovak, yes, so good times.
2: <laughs> I would, from my personal standpoint, the most important thing you can learn is not grammar, it's, it's vocabulary. The more words you can know, a lot of times you just throw out a bunch of words and people get you.
1: Yes, <laughs> you know, I found, I'm going to shout out to an app that I've been using. It's Ankiweb, anki Web. And it is the it, it does um, spaced repetition where you can tell it is this easy, is it medium, is it hard, and it repeats the words. And it's the fastest way I've been able to acquire the vocabulary. And it is, oh, it's a fantastic app. And, you know, Slovak, there aren't very many shared decks to be had, but I've found some. But people from all over the world share these uh, their flashcard decks. And, but the spaced repetition to me has been key.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. I, I find that well, I've been just practicing because I know I want to learn how to teach languages as that are in an individualized manner to people. And I've been practicing with a friend of mine who is Mexican. I've been teaching him English. And what I have found through the process is there's an amazing amount of uh, YouTube videos. They're all designed to sell their products, but There's so many of them that you can go back and forth between different types of methodologies and different types of ways of doing things. And it's amazing how effective it's been. He's really learned a lot of English things to the fact that I'm willing to try different things. And a lot of times, rather, the part I actually enjoy, which has been a surprise to me, is the developing of materials to accompany those videos. I actually enjoy making up tests and quizzes and and exercises and vocabulary things and different things. And I just try different things. And I most people don't like doing that part of it. And most teachers want to just kind of stick to a certain routine. But to me, that's the fun part: is trying it and saying, "Oh no, that doesn't work. Oh yeah, that works." <laughs> or maybe if I do that, I I should do it this way in the future. And Strangely enough, I've learned a lot of Spanish through this, especially as he's become more advanced. I keep learning new words in Spanish.
1: Huh,
0: that's awesome. Well, Paul, you've given a ton of great advice today uh, for someone considering to being a senior nomad. Um, any kind of one last piece of advice that you would give to someone considering this lifestyle? I think the most important...
2: I. I One of the reasons why why I'm kind of working on the development of individualized classes for people in languages and also in how to live in another country and so forth, is that I really don't think that there is one way to do anything. I think each person has their own. The only right or wrong way to do anything is what works for you. And I think that one of the biggest problems we make is we just think, oh, we're just going to invest in this one thing and it's going to work. I don't think that's the case. I think each person is individual. And the one real blessing to being able to live as a a nomadic lifestyle for a while is that you can try things. And the world's not going to fall apart if you find out you don't like something. And uh, I think that's the number one piece of advice I can give you is just try it. Just try different things. Try different approaches. Don't be too sold on one thing. I love tours, and I would encourage people to go on tours. I wouldn't want to do that all the time. But there's so many websites out there that say, oh, don't ever go on a tour, it's so phony, it's so blah, blah, blah. No, it's not, it, it, it depends on you. I love just getting information, having everything organized for me. But I don't want that all the time, you know? And I think that each person's individual, they'll find their own path.
0: That's wonderful advice. So. Paul, as we wrap up, if listeners would like to know more about you and your own personal journey, where can they find uh, this information?
2: Um, I have a 50plusnomad.com website uh, that has a lot of information. Um, They can certainly contact me. It's kind of been interesting to me, most of the stuff that I've got. Most of the people have found my website, and most of the... Uh, requests for information and so forth, I, for, for various reasons, have been almost inclusively about Merida. And while I am happy to answer questions on that, it's not a subject that I think I'm the best person to answer because I live in a very different way than most people do here. Um, and um, I'm not so I'm not really the best person to say, oh, this is the best restaurant or this is the best person to help you to buy a house or that type of thing. It's not really where my expertise lies or my interest lies, but I would be very happy to help them to figure out like where do they want to live in Mexico and what are the cultural differences that uh, that will help them to determine if it makes sense for them to live here. Um, and to teach them a bit about Mexico and teach them about Merida and culture, society, its way of being. And those, those types of things, I'd be more than happy to spend lots of time talking to people about, um, and that's where my real expertise lies.
1: Well, I love that, because you certainly have great credentials, all of your travels and experiences, and I think, you know, that could be very helpful, and I think today's discussion is going to be very helpful for all those up-and-coming senior nomads out there, uh, you know, waiting, waiting anxiously to go travel.
0: I really enjoyed our conversation today with Paul. He shared some wild stories.
1: Yeah, he did. It was actually really great to hear someone else's perspective regarding this nomadic retirement lifestyle.
0: Yeah, because if you remember, we talked to Sam Roberts from The Running Traveler a while ago, and they definitely shared some things that I thought were very similar, and they actually had a lot of very differing views.
1: They did, and one of the things that struck me was the fact that there were some places that Paul really loved that Sam really didn't like. And it underscored the fact that, A, it's very subjective, whether you might like a place or not. So the other thing is that you can do all the research in the world, but until you're physically in a place, feeling... The heat or the cold, smelling the smells, dealing with the people, you really don't know if you're going to like that place or not.
0: Sort of like when we were in Panama... And I decided that I didn't like the heat as much as I normally would.
1: Yeah, you were a little whiny about it, but don't tell anybody I said that.
0: <laughs> I was a little whiny about that, but, uh, you know, we enjoyed the country. It was just really hot a couple of days.
1: It was very hot, actually. I'll, I'll corroborate that story. Well, on that note, I think that's it for today's episode.
0: We really hope you got some inspiration from Paul today. Be sure to check out his website, 50plusnomad.com.
1: And while you're at it, head over to retirementrovers.com. We've got blogs about cities from all over the world that might help you get some more information to help narrow down your list. And this info might help you find your paradise.